Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Charles Fain Lehman, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, contributing editor of City Journal. I'm Aaron Sabariam, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. Aaron, how are you doing today? I'm good, Charles. I had a busy weekend. I was hanging out at ISI's Conference on Political Economy in D.C., much of which was boring because I don't know economics and can't follow technical debates about finance. Harsh. But what was interesting, no, what, no it's not their fault it was boring. It was just boring to me because <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a social <laughs> science philistine. Much, much sure it's okay. To, it's my fault. It's not. No, no, no. It was. It, it, yeah, no. It's my fault. It's. It's. It's the 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 numinal reality of the conference was. I'm sure great, but I only had access to it phenomenally through my into my subjective Kantian categories of intuition, which are very social scientifically illiterate, and therefore to me interpreting reality, it was kind of boring because I suck <laughs> anyway. However. Even my very, very social scientifically retarded Kantian categories of intuition were able to discern some interesting themes about where the right is heading. You know, I think a few years ago at a conference like this, you would have heard a lot about how great immigrants were and how, you know, we want more immigrants so that we can pay them below minimum wage in order to like, you know, like basically have a surf class that reduces prices for Americans. Yay, isn't that good? Well, as you might imagine, that was not the tone of this conference. And instead, there was a lot of discussion about not just sort of, you know, big business being evil, but also really about family structure and the need for the economy to work for American families. And Rick Santorum got up there and, you know, was saying that, hey, you know, in 2012, I tried to run this kind of populist pro-family campaign and it didn't really work. But then Donald Trump tapped into my themes and was a much more successful politician than I was. So, you know, I've kind of been vindicated, even though he clearly doesn't love Trump for reasons we can probably guess. But yeah, you know, it was it was strike. It was yeah, but it was it was actually quite interesting to see just how much the, the debate had shifted. And there were some libertarians there, but I think they were clearly in the minority. And certainly they were in the minority among conference attendees and and those who asked libertarian questions tended to be mocked and shut down by speakers, which which Charming. was entertaining. Charles has dubbed me the transition master and says that I am much better at transitioning than the Tavistock gender clinic, which was closed. <laughs> this is um, the joke I was making so, before I started recording. So, so, and so on the subject of, of family policy, Charles, yeah, since please. you actually know about this, why don't you introduce our topic for today? See, I spent the weekend actually with my family, my, my, my oh, parents and nice. everything. So not just policy, I was, I, was, I was living. No, the family is the institution that we're talking about this week. That's what we're interested in this week. You know, family is one of the foundational institutions of society. Yet people often think that it's getting weaker. There's at least some evidence to back that up. Just pulling some numbers up this morning, 1970, 73% of Americans over 25 were married. Today, it's 54%. The number of children an American woman can expect to have, it's a little bit less than 1.7 in her lifetime, is the lowest on record, lower than really anything we've measuring in since about 1800, there was, I think, a social trend of sort of increasing hostility to marriage and family from many elite commentators. I hopefully we'll talk a little bit about the, the push for family abolition, which is not sort of popular, but certainly has a cachet among people who go on MSNBC or write for the New York Times. And on top of all of this, I think that there's a, a growing interest, as you alluded to, Aaron, in, in the sort of question of can conservatives do family policy? Is is there a role for the government supporting family? This sort of a longstanding issue. So there are a million and one things about the family that we're interested in. I think at, at core, it's like this institution is commonly agreed by both supporters and opponents to be eroding. Why is that happening? And what, if anything, can we do about it? We'll get to our guests in a second, but obviously... Aaron, Aaron, do you do you want to offer your take? I'll offer a take, and then we'll get to our guest. Yeah. So I just want to float a hypothesis that is probably bullshit, but that has occurred to me, and I just want to put out there to kind of help frame this discussion a little bit. It's a hypothesis I call reverse Malthusianism. You know, we often hear that birth rates are falling, and because birth rates are falling, Western societies need to bring in more immigrants because otherwise we're not going to be able to afford nice things like the welfare state. It's a kind of economic instrumentalist case for you know, po policies aimed at 
increasing the size of the population. And so then, of course, you know, conservatives will say, well, we should try to just get the birth rate up and not rely on immigration. What I want to put out there is that there, there seems to be a very strong inverse relationship between wealth and fertility. The richer people are, the fewer kids they have in most societies with one or two exceptions that we can talk about. You know, this pattern holds true. And as the developed world where the immigrants come from gets richer, you know, you see the trends happening there too. Like this happened in the Middle East. It's really quite robust. Here's here's sort of what I take to be the reverse Malthusian trap. If we're destined, if every time society becomes really comfortable, our will to reproduce collapses, birth rates collapse, aren't we going to then kind of create the underpopulation conditions that we're often told lead to material privation. If so, then isn't that material privation going to in turn return us to sort of the conditions under which birth rates were higher, thereby causing birth rates to temporarily rise, which will in turn sort of under, you know, create prosperity, which will in turn undermine the birth rate, right? And on and on and on. And my kind of dystopian apocalyptic scenario that keeps me up at night is we kind of get into this almost reverse Malthusian trap in which we're always just at this kind of like the entire world is at this level where we keep reproducing, we keep getting too rich to have the will to reproduce, then we kind of get, you know, things fall apart, then we have just enough babies to keep us going. And we kind of go on like this in this just sort of you know, at this dystopian equilibrium that's not very fulfilling and, and you know, not particularly prosperous or, or comfortable, at least. This very well may be completely wrong and total bullshit. I am hoping that our guest and Charles, who knows more about this stuff, can tell me why that hypothesis is not going to come true. But it's always seemed to me to be kind of a logical implication of the, the current trends we have, or at least something that 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 could be seen to flow logically from it. And so I'm curious if there are any ideas on avoiding kind of a quasi children of men like scenario in perpetuity. On that happy note, Charles, what do you think about family policy? Oh, I mean, well, I designed a little bit of pessimist too, not necessarily in that in that macro regard. What I mentioned talking about today is, you know, I I I, this is obviously an issue area in which I'm very interested. I've written about it, including alongside our guest over at the Institute of Family Studies. You know, I, 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 I think the macro trend in the West, but also in developing countries is a general decline in family formation, infertility, childbearing. I'm not sure that policy can do anything to pull us out of this sort of marriage childbearing nosedive. It seems like the forces at play are much bigger than what policy can bring to bear on the problem. So maybe our guest will be more of an optimist than either of us. Uh, let's 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 find out if he is. Let's welcome our guest. Patrick T. Brown is a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, whose work focuses on developing a pro-family economic agenda. So, you know, hopefully. His writing has been published in The New York Times, National Review, Politico, The Washington Post, and USA Today. And he's spoken on college campuses and Capitol Hill on topics from welfare reform, child care, and education policy. Prior to joining EPPC, Patrick served as a senior policy advisor to Congress's Joint Economic Committee, JC. There he helped lead research about how to make it more affordable to raise a family and more effectively invest in youth and young adults. Before we get to him, first we're going to briefly have a word from our sponsors. From the grocery store to the gas station, working families are getting hammered by rising prices. But instead of focusing on inflation, Congress is pushing anti-innovation legislation that will impose more financial burdens on working people and seniors. Their misguided agenda could cost public pension plans $109 billion. Teachers, firefighters, and nurses would pay the heaviest price. Congress needs to focus on inflation and leave American workers alone. And we're back. Patrick, welcome to Institutionalized. Thanks, guys. With that kind of optimistic note, I'm looking forward to the next hour. <laughs> well, so, 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 Patrick, we like to start with sort of an opening provocative question. And, you know, so, so right now, the left, especially after Dobbs came down, the left has been going on about how the right only cares about children from conception to birth. Is that true? It's not, it's not true. It has somewhat of a grain of truth in it in the sense that I think conservatives are much more willing to 
at least traditionally have been much more willing to countenance social spending when it came to, you know, crisis pregnancy centers and providing benefits to pregnant moms. And, and certainly there's, you know, depending on where you are in the country, there's some people who are more willing to, you know, provide a more robust safety net after birth as well. And I think, you know, might work and, and some other folks have, have been encouraging conservatives to do that as well. But I, I mean, obviously, you know, the, the, the reason why that has a ring of truth is because the left, is, for the most part, doesn't care about life before birth, at least not to the same, you know, degree of, of reverence that I think the right does. And so in that, in, in that sense, because the right is the, is the party of people who do, you know, want to make sure that life in the womb is protected, you know, they, they're going to, by comparison, stand out as being unusually obsessed. And, and I think this is the case with a lot of sort of traditionalist conservatives. They seem unusually obsessed with sex and reproduction and the birth rate and that sort of thing, because these topics aren't talked about in polite society. And so, you know, the folks like Charles and myself and others who, who do this kind of work, I think sometimes can be seen as being too concerned about, you know, our, our precious bodily fluids and, and you know, the, the fate of the West and all this sort of stuff. But I think it's important for, for people to be discussing. So I'm happy to be on here talking about it. Well, let's, 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 let's sort of dig right into it then. I, I cited some, you know, maybe to some scary to others, great statistics that have described declining birth rates, declining marriage rates, declining family formation. Can you put those statistics in context? Talk to our talk to our listeners a little bit about what has happened with marriage, family, and childbirth over the past, I don't know, 60, 70 years in the United States since since the baby boom. Right. Well, I think the first and most important thing to recognize is the baby boom was really weird, right? The the sort of pent-up demand for family formation in the wake of World War II, the sort of surge in childbearing that happened in, in those post post-war years were really anomalous. And, you know, we shouldn't expect the world of the 2020s to, or you know, or thereafter to look like this very historically contingent time period. So when when conservatives talk about, you know, families, they sometimes fall into the trap of sort of leave it to beaverism and they treating the the, you know, 1950s as 1960s as the baseline at which we should be you know, examining these trends from. And I don't think that's the right way to think about it. We should also be thinking about, you know, the, the long-term trend of infant mortality declining, life expectancy going up, a lot of things that have made marriage in, in, in childbearing a little less economically necessary. And certainly we could talk about, you know, the rise of, of reliable contraceptives as making marriage less necessary. There's, there's a lot of technical and philosophical and political changes that have happened over the last, you know, century or more that, you know, that have decrease the necessity of, of marriage for certain goods in life. And, and we've made family less less necessary. So in that sense, we're, and we shouldn't be surprised that marriage has has declined and, and, and people are getting married later and later. You know, it used to be each children were your retirement plan. And so you you had, you know, eight or nine kids to make sure there was somebody to take care of you in your uh, you know, old age. And now we have social security and a, a whole host of safety net programs. And that's been linked to lower fertility and, and just a general cultural shift, I think. So the, the, the trends, if you're somebody who likes babies, uh, as I think most of us do, aren't, aren't especially salutary, but we have, if you break it out by married fertility versus unmarried fertility, you know, for the 80s and 90s, you really saw this wave of concern, you know, even going back to the Moynihan report of single motherhood. And and, and that was a real thing. It, it really did surge. You can trace it back to the welfare state as, as Charles Murray did, or to some of the economic trends, you know, like William Jesus Wilson talks about and other folks. But whatever the cause, single marriage, single motherhood did surge from the 60s onward. And starting in the mid-90s, coincidentally or not, right around welfare reform, it starts to level off. And then ever since the Great Recession, it's basically fallen off a cliff. And so I think conservatives need to recognize that families are, and, 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 and childbearing are, are evolving in, relate, in reaction to greater economic forces as well. And so pounding the table about single moms and that sort of thing is a little bit less relevant than it used to be. So, so all that is to say, these trends continue to evolve, and, and I think it's important to be keeping your finger on the pulse of, of what they look like today. So, so Patrick, you said something interesting there, which is that welfare and, and, and you know social security, these sorts of social safety net programs, were associated with a decline in family formation, in part because they just made families less essential, right? It seems to me that that diagnosis is is at least prima facie intention 
with some of the new kind of conservative pro-family discourse, which tends to say, no, we shouldn't be focusing so much on, you know, cutting entitlements. That's bad. We don't need, you know, that's not really what we need to be focused on, blah, blah, blah. Like we need to provide, the state should be comfortable with spending money on families, et cetera, et cetera. But if the reason family formation has declined is inter alia, that the state spent money on people, right? One might, you know, if, if, if I were say like, a, you know, kind of stereotypical, maybe old school, like from the 90s AEI or heritage scholar, I would say, well, you've just proved the point that we should be, you know, cutting entitlements and spending less money. So what's, what's the, you're obviously more sympathetic though to, to a more kind of state focused, you know, spending focused approach to, to family formation. So what's the response to that kind of objection? Yeah, well, I think that's, that's, you know, on some level true. If, if we, you know, gutted social security tomorrow, I think a lot of people would be, look on having another kid more favorably. And, and if that's the political argument people want to make, then like, you know, hey, go for it. I, I don't think that's politically viable. And I think, you know, we, we instituted these programs for a reason because, you know, there were certainly, you know, elder rates of poverty were, were through the roof and that sort of thing. So assuming that we're not going to hack away root and branch of the modern welfare state overnight, I think it's important to think about ways in which the modern economy penalizes parents, penalize, penalizes having a family. And you know, one way I like to think about it is just from a very, you know, sorry, Aaron, I know, I know uh, not to get into your Kantian realization of the world and, and bore you to sleep over here, but to think about it from economics lens, right? <laughs> and thinking about parent parents, when they have a kid, bear all sorts of costs, you know, diapers, formula, car seats, clothes, all that sort of stuff. In addition to the opportunity cost of, you know, taking time off of work to raise the kid and, and you know, some, some parents do that longer than others. And over time, that adds up. You know, the USDA estimates, and you can kind of quibble with this, but, on, on, you know, one semi-reliable estimate is it about, it's about a quarter million dollars from the cost of, from the time of birth until age 18 to raise a child. That's a lot of money. And in a previous era, without a social safety net, you know, you, again, the, the kids were your retirement plan. So you kind of got that back over the course of your life. But now, especially with the sort of pace you go entitlement systems that we have and all this sort of stuff, the benefits to having a child now accrue socially, because those are the workers that, you know, are the, are the fuel of the economy. Economy going forward, and they—they're paying you know, for Social Security. They're—they're—they're they're, they're the ones who are subsidizing today's boomers' retirement. Exactly, and and they're creating jobs, and they're you know innovating, you know, driving productivity growth, all this sort of stuff. And none of that comes back to the parents, right? You sort of set your free kid free, or or uh, you know, at least you hope to set your kid free, and they don't return too many times when they you know graduate college, and and they go off, and 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 your your sort of social, your individual costs of child childbearing of parent is sort of rewarded to society at large. And so I think there's a strong economic case for recognizing that the cost of parenthood is, has increased. Again, both the real and the opportunity cost of parenthood has increased and spreading some of that across the, co the, the population who's benefiting from those individual costs that parents bear. So that's, that's how I would sort of frame it. So I I I want to I want to talk and we want to dig in dive into some hard questions, but I want to do just a little more context for our listeners. You work on family policy; that's a very big ambit. Some on the left and the right like to maintain that America is sort of uniquely bad at providing for families. I wonder if you can talk about the landscape of family policy, what currently exists. Are we uniquely bad, and what are the sort of big initiatives currently under discussion on the left and right? Yeah, that you got a couple hours here. No, I, I think, <laughs> I, you know, especially on the left, people love to, you know, rag on the U.S. as being, you know, this uniquely evil place. Uh, and that's not true. We, we, we provide a lot of money for families. It tends to go in the form of, of uh, public education spending. So from K to 12, we spend as much, if not more than anybody in the OECD. So kind of leaving that aside, we, we, we do spend a little less on public provision of childcare and early childhood stuff. And we can, we can get into that, but I, I, the amount of spending doesn't bother me as much. I think to me, it's, it's more, you know, Aaron sort of alluded to, I'm a little more comfortable with some space state spending on families, but I do think there are trade-offs in getting the government involved with something as intimate and personal as family life. And so if you roll out, as we saw that the Biden administration wanted to do last year until Joe Manchin put his foot down, you know, a massive government, you know, subsidies for childcare and universal pre-K, that's setting a, a 
cultural expectation that you're going to have both parents in the workforce. And you know, you're sort of putting the weight of the federal government behind saying, well, we're making this benefit available to you. And we, you know, we sort of are, are, are subtly encouraging that everybody takes it up, but not everybody, not every family wants this. I mean, we know from polling data, certainly the work of our, our friends over at American Compass, that there's a big class divide in who wants access to childcare. And, and unsurprisingly, families with two professional parents, you know, who are engaged in the labor force really prefer a sort of center race childcare. And, and families who are middle working class and, and below would love to have a parent or relative stay home with that child. So those ideas from the left, I think, tend to borrow from, I'll just sort of say, Scandinavian-style big government approaches that, that sort of sees the family as, or I should say, sees the role of the state as lifting the obligations of family life from the individuals who make up that family. So relieving parents of the burden of childcare so they can get back to the workforce. And, and in some sense, really having the state provide a formative role for that child at a very early age. And, and I think there's reasons that conservatives are rightly you know, concerned about that. And then on the right, I, I, you know, you sort of alluded to traditionally was sort of a very laissez-faire approach, you know, not wanting the government to be too involved. We can kind of, you know, think of people who might fit that role. But I think more recently we've seen the rise of, you know, folks who would like to adopt a more urbanist style of family policy that, that he's pioneered in Hungary. Urbanists and Victor Orban. Yes, thank you. You know, explicitly subsidizing big families and giving married couples a, a loan that is is forgiven after some amount of time if they don't divorce, and and, and really putting a, fun, a finger on the scale and saying, you know, we we want there to be more more babies, more marriages, and that sort of thing in a very muscular way that I don't think really maps onto the American character. We don't tend to like social engineering in the U.S. So I kind of think of those as being the two tendencies in the current family policy conversation. And obviously I think I'm, I'm right because I'm right in the middle. Fair enough. Well, so let me, as as somebody who's, I think, perhaps not Victor Orban sympathetic, but, uh, but sympathetic <laughs> to the idea that declining fertility is a serious problem, which may require policy interventions. I want to, I want to ask you about, look, this seems like, this seems like a pretty big issue to me. And as we alluded to in the opening, I think both Aaron and I are worried about the long-term trend, both nationally and also globally. Should we be worried, you know, in a society like Taiwan or Japan, where the total fertility rate, the total number of children a woman can expect time in her lifetime is below one? Should we be worried about that? And then separately, do we think policy can do anything to ameliorate it? Or do we just need to live, you know, we do, do we just need to accept that we're entering the era of declining population growth? Yeah, no, we should definitely uh, for, be worried <laughs> Definitely be worried about it. And I'm not really sure what we can do about it, to be honest. I, I And really one reason- We solved why, it. We're good. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We're done. Thanks, guys. Uh, now, one reason why I'm, I'm especially concerned about it is I think it has a really negative effect on the children that are born in a low fertility regime. I think a lot of the, you know, snowflake wokeness stuff that you guys have written about so much- you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but but it really comes out of a, a civilization in which every child bears the whole and unadulterated weight of their parents' hopes and dreams because you know they tend to you know they they come from smaller families, they're smaller extended family trees, fewer aunts and uncles, and so there's just a much more you know you see the rise of helicopter parents, all this sort of stuff that I think fuels some of the you know political. The, the yeah the 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 negative trends we're seeing in politics and, and I and my colleague at the Ethics in Public Policy or sorry my my one of our our friends at the Ethics in Public Policy Center not a formal colleague but Mary Eberstadt wrote a book where she kind of traces the rise of wokeness to the breakdown family I don't know if it's totally an empirical story but I think in in broad brushstrokes really makes a lot of sense and so you know that I do worry about that but but to your point about what we could do about it gosh, you know, spent a lot of money and hope for the best. You know, there, there's very limited evidence that, you know, sort of traditional, you know, baby bonds or, or baby bonus or, or child benefits or something have that, you know, big of an impact on fertility. You know, some of the most parent-friendly places in the world are Northern Europe, which does not have very high fertility. And, and you know, there's a philosophical debate you can have about what actually makes a, a family-friendly society. Is that something that's explicitly pro-natal or is it something that's trying to just make parents' lives easier? And, and, you know, you can kind of weigh that in different ways, but 
you know, for the most part, I I think the 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 goal that I see for family policy is is more towards the the latter side of that. Just saying, let's try to ease as many of these trade offs as possible. Let's try to relieve the financial hit that parents take, and and you know some of the some of the burdens around family life that are are imposed by by the sort of modern economy, and also just some of our you know path dependent. Institutions and policy choices that we've made, and, and see what happens. Because I, I think, like I said, the, the idea of a, a big, you know, I think it's is it Singapore that has a national night, which encourages parents to to take the night off and and, and procreate. That's right. Not even number. I, I, they're, yeah, they're, 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 they're pro procreation campaigns across many does, states does and that, countries. Does that one work? That <laughs> no, they don't. They don't really work, and I don't see that one. You can't work take time off. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's, it seems like that might not really, you know, be, if you want to encourage people to procreate, you know, spontaneity is probably a, a prerequisite for the most, maybe, shall we say, propensity to procreate sex. And I would imagine that the government announcing an official day where you're supposed to have sex might kind of undermine the spontaneity needed for the sorts of sexual encounters that produce children. I don't know. Seems... Seems like maybe a, a, a poorly conceived part in the fun. I mean, well, there's, there's a, um, I mean, there's, there's a related question, which is like, and, and Aaron alluded to this, and I just want to ask about it. Like the, the reality of fertility math is that the U.S. is sort of floating slightly below, a little bit above in, at, at the peak in that between the end of the Babe Bruin at 2007. We were sort of below replacement fertility, which is for listeners, 2.1 kids per mother, because it's like one for mom, one for dad, and then 0.1 to replace women who die prematurely. Floating like slightly below 2.1 or like right at it in 2007. And then it tail dives. A lot of what's going on there, as as I think we've talked about already, we've alluded to, is that we had extremely high teen pregnancy rates. Like like babies were having babies, which is which is I think many social conservatives argued in the 1990s a huge social issue. So you know while while it's good to sort of talk about trade offs, it seems like the margin on which fertility has retreated has been. All of these people who were not following our friend Brad Wilcox's success sequence, they weren't, you know, they weren't going to college, they weren't getting a job, they weren't getting married. Is that, is that like a, an, an escapable reality? Like, can we, can we recover childbearing without higher rates of teen pregnancy? And if so, can you make the case for teen pregnancy? <laughs> <laughs> I've thought about doing that. I, I, I've not quite bitten that bullet yet, but I do think I, I, you're right that the the national campaign to end teen pregnancy was a huge success, starting the mid '90s and going into the 2000s. Now, what you describe largely took place before the Great Recession, and that's where you see this this big dip down in birth rates. And what I think is happening there, if you kind of decompose some of the data, there's two trends. One, upper class women continue to sort of delay fertility. They, you know, this is being ongoing, but it, it, it accelerates in the wake of the Great Recession. People are, are pushing babies later on in life. But at the same time, you're seeing women who used to not really not really care, and it's not the right way to put it, but but we're more willing to sort of have a pregnancy unexpectedly, we'll say. You know, low-income women, especially Hispanic women, who in the 90s and 2000s, conservatives were, were writing about, there was this great book by first sociologist Kathy Eden called Promises I Can Keep. The idea was, you know, these women didn't have a lot else going for them, but if they got pregnant unexpectedly, they'd, they'd keep that kid because it was someone who they could love and, and build this bond with and, and have a reason to sort of get up out of bed in the morning. And I think that logic changed after the Great Recession. You know, part of it's driven by a, a shift in contraceptive use to more reliable forms of contraception. And also, I just think the sort of cultural logic at play has changed. And, and, and I don't know if you can re put that genie back in the bottle. I think the idea in some respects, you know, that Brad's success sequence stuff that has been maybe, maybe too successful or, or just successful enough, I don't know, in, in really encouraging people to not have kids till they're quote unquote ready. And so that does, like I said at the outset, it does push married or unmarried fertility way down. And, and married fertility has dipped a little bit, especially during COVID, but I'm, I'm less worried about that over the long run. And I think really, if you're concerned about fertility, you have to be concerned about marriage and you have to be concerned about the increasingly delayed rates of marriage. You know, now the average age of first marriage is something like 32. And, and that's just a much more compressed time window to have more than one or two kids. And so 
you know, I think that the decline in fertility is really just as much a story about a decline in marriage and a decline in, in seeing family as an important institution on its in, on its merits in conjunction with the sort of stigmatization of, of unborn motherhood and that sort of thing. So we like to ask provocative questions on the show with the potential to get our guests canceled. Uh, so <laughs> apologies in advance, but you know, That's a great way I, to intro our question. There's there's a there's there there is this sort of debate on the right. Uh, effectively about whose fault this is, the, the decline in marriage. And often that debate collapses into which gender is most at fault. Is it guys, you know, being promiscuous and knocking, you know, and, and sleeping with women and then not wanting to commit and being unmarriageable? Is it girls being promiscuous, right? And in some way driving this kind of sex recession by participating in the neoliberalization of sexual mores? Is it a mix? Do you think neither gender is especially culpable? Or, you know, what is it? Because this is something that often comes up. So I'm curious how you apportion blame between the sexes on the one hand and then between kind of the choices of individual actors versus structural economic forces on the other. Yeah, that's that's a really great question, uh, and and I will try to answer it in a way that that preserves my my future prospects of employment. I think it's both. You know, I I, I do think you know there. Are... In the, it's been interesting, right? So in the in the 60s, 70s, there was a lot of talk about the breakdown of the black family. Black family, you know, certainly you know, talking about cultural influences, you know, and for too, obviously. And and so I think in, in that discussion, there was a lot of talk about sort of individual responsibility and and you know, pull up your pants and all that sort of stuff, right? Over time, I think we we may have overcorrected a little bit, or or at least had a a more fuller picture talking when we we saw these same trends of the decline of family life coming in, in regions like Appalachia and, and other parts of the country that had seen jobs go out. And there's definitely a, a role that economics plays as well. If you're if you're a blue collar, you know, a, a high school educated male worker, you know, maybe your earnings potential isn't isn't that attractive for a potential spouse. And so if you're a, a woman living in, in that community, there's really not a lot of benefit to you marrying somebody who who's not going to pull his own weight economically or is who's is going to be you know net net you know zero if not you know he's not adding anything maybe he's not subtracting anything but he's not you know he's not a provider in the way that maybe he was in, in other generations and i think you know just to footnote that conversation i think that concern is undergirding a lot of the conversation around stuff like industrial policy and you know a more robust economic vision on the right certainly you know again the sort of american compass flavored approach to conservatism, thinking about the, the economic market and the job market as, as being in the service of, of strong families and, and helping men be able to provide, you know, I think that's that's a real big issue there. But obviously, you know, the, the, the tortured gender dynamics are not limited to low income and, and low educated men and women too. We're, we're seeing, you know, any number of pathologies play out in the, in the mating and dating lives of, of college educated workers, uh, uh, you know, individuals as well. And there I do think it's, it's this cultural story. And, and, you know, people like to try to pin it on economic factors like, oh, you know, student loan debt is, is causing people to put off marriage or, or the cost of housing or, or some of these other things. And I just don't really, I think those are post post hoc explanations for a lot of that stuff. I think, you know, for the most part, people are just choosing to, to live their you know, carefree single life in their twenties longer and longer. And, you know, that's, that's sort of evolving through, through the marriage market. And so, you know, to the extent that we can sort of lower economic barriers to people getting married in their mid twenties, we should be all about that. But, you know, I think part, a lot of this is just, you know, whether it's neoliberalism or whatever you want to, you know, attribute it to it. I think a lot of it is, is just people seeing a greater value in, in, in remaining unattached until they're, they're you know, really feel quote unquote, ready to settle down when they're, you know, 30 or 35. One of my, and, and, and this is related, you know, I think, I think you're making your, your argument is that in some levels, this is a, this is a cultural issue. So it's, it's, it's a shift in how we think about marriage, how we think about family formation rather than just sort of like pure economic incentives. You know, I, I wrote a piece some years ago about the effect of student debt on family formation. And it seems like there's an effect, but it's not, you know, just positive. But, you know, I think and we've been talking around this. There's there really is this sort of great, great cultural repression in the in the late 80s, early 90s, early 2000s, that whole sort of decade, you know, the, the Newt Gingrich decade. 
the the era book that when all sexual energy in the states was channeled through him. <laughs> there's no, there's, there's this is great repression. We lock a lot of people in prison. We like take back our cities. We like we we crack down on teen pregnancy. We're very considered abstinence. And I think it, Charles, it, you sound so nostalgic. The nineties were a better time. Um, like, oh, no, I, but I think the repression. Was, I, I love it. <laughs> It's great. No, no, but I think it's a response to 30 years of sort of released animal spirits in the 60s, 70s, early 80s take form from, from the sexual revolution up through the crack crisis. This is a very roundabout, A, I'm drafting this essay in my head, so that's what I'm talking about. But B, it seems to me like that cultural change was itself a response to a lot of social pathologies, you know, and it's 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 bred pathologies of its own. Like, is, 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 is that a forced choice? Can we either be like, you know, wild and free brat pack or like, you know, people sitting on Facebook not having kids until they're 45? Well, no, I, I agree the 90s were the best time to be raised as a child. So, you know, the, you have my endorsement there. I, I do think <laughs> that, you know, I'm not as much of a, of a legal scholar as some some folks I know. I would point you to the work of my colleague, Erica Bakiaki, who's traced some of this stuff. But I do think the decline of the family as a legal institution was definitely a choice. And it was pursued, you know, by, you know, maybe some well-meaning people but and a lot of people who whose conception of the good I would disagree with very strongly. But it was all about sort of decreasing the perceived paternalism of the, of the traditional family structure. And certainly family law took a much more egalitarian, individualistic bent over that time. And so in that sense, you know, I, I don't want to sound like a, a total stereotypical conservative of the 90s, but I do think, you know, judges and, and case law had a lot to do with with some of you know what you the, the 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 backlash that you're talking about and this this great liberalization, you know, and, and and I think this has an effect because this family goes from being something that's normative to being something that you can sort of opt into. It has real downstream cultural you know effects, right? And so it, it's sort of interesting to see. I, there's a poll from the. I think it's mid 60s or right before the sexual revolution, like 62, that asks whether all married couples who can, should they have children? Ought they, you know, do they have an obligation to have children? And it was almost, it was like 90, 85, 90% of people said, yes, married couples should have children. And, and by two decades later, the early 80s, it was, it was half that. It was like 40%. And now, of course, if you ask that, I think it would, it would, you know, the hard, Press to clear twenty percent. I, I would imagine. I don't. I would, I would be interested to, to to ask that question myself. But that that idea of sort of family life as being sort of the natural way of things, and and the you know family being the sort of institution that is oriented towards the promulgation of the species and something that everybody does when they get married, you know, get, get out of college, get married, you know, that's just broken down. And, and, and again, some of this is because of this, this liberalization and, and some, some of this is, you know, that might be good in, in, in some respects, but I do think that there's been a decline of sort of family life as a marriage specifically as, as being a, a goal that people want to reach. And if you look in polling data more recently, even among Republicans, a majority of Republicans told Gallup that if the if a if a couple has a child together, it's not important that they get married. And you know, again, this has been declining. I think you had Rob Henderson on a, a couple of weeks ago, and, and and he's written about this as well. And and so, you know, just the idea that we've had this sort of flowering of of approaches to living one's life, which is all, all well and good, but it's it's come at the cost of that sort of institution of of the family as being this this you know vessel that people can rely on and right. you know certainly divorce was you know a, a major you know thing that got that kick started if, if this being a, a relationship rather than is something that you're sort of bound to for richer or poorer it becomes very contingent and that sort of acidifies the bonds of family life right so i mean i mean one one story people tell is that all these legal changes and divorce and other things happened as a result of a cultural change and i guess to just summarize your argument you know, without denying that there was a kind of cultural force involved, you're also suggesting, no, it was the it was also the legal changes itself that kind of served as a teacher and, and kind of inculcated a new morality instead of social norms. It's not just sort of one way, the causality, if, if the causality goes in both directions. If, 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 if you say yes, you win the institutionalized like theme <laughs> prize of the week. Yeah, no, definitely. It's it, it's it's both and, right? And it's just yeah. similar. It reminds me of a little bit of the school prayer stuff, where you have a court case that that picks up on these elite 
driven, you know, ideas of, of secularization and, and that informed that in that in turn, you know, fuels a greater secularization because you're 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 sort of leaning into the where the cultural winds are headed, but it also brings about what it's, you know, what it's aiming for. So, you know, I, I do think that it, it is both of those things. So, so I think this, this is timely because just recently there were all these Republicans who voted, I think, for to codify gay marriage, right? And there's all this discussion about how a lot of Republicans now are basically saying, oh yeah, you know, whatever, gay marriage, it's fine. Obviously, a lot of people argued that by widening marriage to make it more inclusive of gay people, we would be strengthening the institution. And, you know, since that happened, it's obviously only been like, it's been less than a decade, but I'm just curious, do you think that those predictions have been borne out, refuted, or is it just kind of been a wash? Because I see evidence that seems to point in conflicting directions. Yeah, I mean... The this is the part of the conversation that's really going to be canceled. No, I think I think the yeah, Andrew Sullivan Come on. go for it. <laughs> the Andrew Sullivan case for for gay marriage, I think, was more premised on the idea that it would be civilizing to the gay community who needed that sort of legal recommend mm-hmm. uh, re, you know recognition of their relationships. And so, in that sense, you know, I you know, obviously, I was much younger at the time. I had no influence at all. I always thought that having some sort of civil union, you know, companionate marriage kind of thing would be a gesture in that direction, right? While preserving the idea of marriage, you know, sort of a, a marriage with procreative capacity as being something that we want to recognize and, and affirm in law. But since then, you know, we certainly haven't seen a rebound in marriage rates, even though you're now having, you know, a, theoretically a wider pool of people who are eligible. Marriage rates have continued to decline. Marriage rates among the LGBT community have been, I think, fairly low. And, you know, I think you can argue that the that the way that gay marriage was imposed in Obergefell kick you know sort of added fuel to a lot of the fire that was already burning with Ferguson and some of this other stuff really empowering a, a very robust and muscular vision of using civil rights law and and sort of moral you know persuasion to to really advance a, a certain vision of society and so you know to me it's it's hard to see you know some of the you know, battles around, you know, puberty blockers and other things, if you hadn't had a Burgerfell turn out the way that it did. And so, you know, that's a, a little tangential to your question, but a lot of this to say, I, I do, I don't think that, you know, you know, again, they, there was certainly an argument for giving gay people an, a, an opportunity to benefit from spousal visitation and health care benefits and all this sort of stuff, set that aside for sure. But I think this, this continued evolution of marriage away from this sort of, you know, this institution that, that is around, procreation and, and, and childbearing into this vision of, well, it, it's just a social sanction of people who, you know, say they love each other today and, and may not tomorrow. I think I think that was accelerated by Obergefell, but it certainly, again, didn't, didn't stem from that. It stems from 60s and 70s and everything going forward. Yeah. I mean, I think there's an interesting analog here to our debates about immigration in that with immigration, people often say, well, you know, look, it'll help the immigrants, right? When you let the immigrants into your country, you know, they benefit. And some people will argue, and the host country benefits too, but the other argument is, well, even if it does, it also changes the character of the host country, right? And so both groups end up being affected. And it seems to me that with marriage, you can kind of, you can draw an analogy where you say, the more expansive we make marriage, you know, the more people are included in it and that has benefits for them, right? Like, I think there are benefits to gay people being included in marriage, but almost by definition, that is going to change the nature of the thing to which they're admitted. And I think, you know, as with immigration, right, there's often trade-offs and, you know, I don't want to get into a big, you know, debate about this, except just to note that I think there's a position that, that, to me is very intellectually defensible, but you never hear people say, which is gay marriage had pros and cons and reasonable people can disagree about the trade-off schedule. It's usually either it was all good or it was all disastrous. And it seems to me that just with gay marriage and frankly, with a lot of these things, there are trade-offs and it's hard to say that a particular innovation, like say the teen pregnancy thing was all good or all bad. You know, It's probably good that people aren't having for them, right? It's better if you wait until you're like 25 and married to have a kid than when you're 16. But, you know, if if kind of 
a lot of people do that. And eventually that pushes down the fertility rate, you know, and then we have this kind of dystopian, you know, sexless, childless world. Well, you know, that's not great either. So, I mean, I just think in general, in these discussions, it's good to recognize that it's not so easy to say it's an unmitigated good or bad. Yeah, no, I I, I agree with that. Obviously, I'm, I'm, I love nuance as much as anybody. I do think that conservatives... Yeah, nuance. <laughs> worst. Uh, about it. For a long time, conservatives talked about how children need families. And I, I, I was right. That was, you know, ta- you're talking about how, how children, you know, do worse when they're not raised by their, you know, two parents. I think, you know, again, it, it's still true, is is true through the, you know, 60s and onward. But I think now conservatives are almost in this position where, where we're saying, you know, families need children in a sense, right? Where, where, where family has, mm-hmm. you know, has a rationale and it's not just, again, like I said, two, two people who love each other or, or more than two people, depending on the legal regime at the time. But but again, having a, a social institution that's sort of oriented towards procreation, you know, this is something that that by defining marriage down and down and down or or differently, differently, if you more expansively, maybe is a better way to phrase that, you know, you, you've sort of lost the rationale for marriage as being around procreation. And, that it, it, you know, it, again, it, it has some one, you know, impact on sort of, you know, immediate, the, the immediate impact on, on sort of, you know, making marriage maybe more more of a capstone. I think this is Andrew Trulin's phrase where more of a, a, a capstone on, on a successful life well-lived rather than something that you're building off of. So I, I think that's, that is, you know, part of the culture shift we're talking about. And also, again, thinking about the, the children rather than it being a sort of product of, of a marriage, as I think the ideal would be, when you when you define marriage out more and more expansively, you open the door to things like paid surrogacy and other forms of reproduction that obviously then necessitates the involvement of, of third parties. And I think that sort of breaks down the logic of family life too. It injects a, a market element that sort of reminds me of, of Michael Sandel's book, Something Should Not Be For Sale, right? I just think once we start talking about that in the US, it's, it's a, sort of a wild west when it comes to assisted reproduction. But I think those conversations start to start to change in tenor once you no longer think about the family as, as having that, that sort of orientation. But again, th- these are all sort of knock-on consequences of, of that of that earlier generation's idea to sort of change family from being this this integral unit to being just sort of more of a of a constellation of, of individuals who happen to share a roof. And I think I think we're still seeing that in policy and culture today. So let me let me let me sort of we're gonna get a closing thoughts and let me end on sort of a, a more practical note, which is you know I think I think it's right that ultimately this is a cultural shift, particularly high SES individuals are having children later and later for cultural reasons. And I think a lot of that comes down to like, you know, they don't see family formation as appealing. They don't think the purpose of it. So you have, you have four kids now or three? Four. We have three and, and four three. on the way. Four on the way. Okay, well, congratulations. I thought, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, you're, 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 you're doing your part to contribute. You and your <laughs> are doing your part to contribute to the total fertility rate. So what's succinctly, you're talking to your peers, you know, the, the, People who listen to this show all basically are like us. Uh, what's the pitch? Like, like why, why, you know, form a family rather than like getting a fancy degree and I don't know, traveling the world and so forth. Por que no los dos, right? I mean, I, I got a, a needless fancy degree and I, I've, I've I traveled hate traveling children. The it's the worst. <laughs> and, and, and no, I think, I think, you know, there's definitely reasons why, you know, institutions should be doing more to help parents. I, I'm a big believer in that. But also, I think you know, children are are, are worth the sacrifice in, in making. It, you know, in taking some time off. You know, I've, I've taken some time out of the of the labor force to to uh, take care for our kids and that sort of thing. So, uh, it's about setting your priorities, right? And and so I think the priority should be more about recognizing what kids can do to you. You know, shifting your your horizon, right, from being so self-absorbed or, 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 you know, more individualistic and just recognizing, okay, yeah, I, you know, maybe we'll get, you know, published there or, or get that promotion or, or whatever, but, you know, hey, this is more important, right? And so, you know, in some respects, it's, it's sort of hard, you know, these are a little bit 
not commensurable goods, right? Where it's like, I, I can't, I can't explain to somebody why, why having kids changed my life. You have to do a, go and do it yourself. But I, I recommend it. And I, I do think that, like I said, it's good for the kids to have more kids around them. And it's good for the parents to recognize that there's more to life than, than your, your job or, or what's trending on Twitter and that sort of thing. And I, I think kids are really good for, for that dose of perspective. And I, you know, talking about, you know, traveling the world, everybody says, oh, it broadens your horizons. I think, you know, having having a kid broadens your horizons if for no other reason for getting intimately knowledgeable about the cast of, of Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood and Paw Patrol. So those are really good things for people to be getting involved in. I, I'll, I'll, I think that's a good place to leave it. Aaron, to you, do you have any closing thoughts about, about family? Are you, are you more or less pessimistic than when we started this conversation? I'm not really any less pessimistic, but what I think it brings out is that just because there's a kind of long-term structural or cultural trend towards the dystopian doesn't mean that there's nothing we can do to kind of make things better for people on an individual level, right? You know, even if in the aggregate people don't start having families, I think there is still a kind of moral case for making it easier for those who want to start families to do it. And then the other thing I would just say, you know, just to kind of extend the point a little more is even if wealth, you know, and, and sort of affluence is, is inversely correlated with fertility, even if in this kind of secular materialistic culture, people aren't going to have kids, you know, okay, fine. Any hope at turning that around probably is going to require though, given how much people value these consumerist things and material goods, it's going to require them to be able to have kids without sacrificing those beyond what's necessary. Obviously there's going to be a trade-off, but you know, if your theory of the case is that, look, people aren't having kids because they like their nice little cushy lives. Well, you know, another way to look at this is if you, if you make the trade-off too great, kind of once these new consumerist norms have set in, you're kind of screwed. And the only way you're going to get out of this is by showing people that it's possible to have a child while also being able to travel and while also, you know, having some nice things. So in that sense, you know, even though I was trying to argue this kind of pessimistic, you know, wealth is the problem, we can only fix it by like starving people or whatever. In practice, once once the new norms have set in, you actually probably do need to adopt this more kind of, you know, welfareist, let's make it easy to have kids mentality, just because that kind of that ship has sailed. So I'm left both somewhat about as pessimistic as I was when I started the conversation, but also more convinced than I was at the start that we do need to, in fact, work to make it materially easier to have a family. Oh, see, I think totally. I've, 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 oh, I've come around right. to a totally opposite perspective. Oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Look, I think ultimately the shift is cultural in character. And the way in which it is cultural in character is that our risk aversion has gone up across the culture. A friend who has now left the common, the, the think piece biz altogether many years ago. Uh, she was a cook and now she's a homemaker in Florida. Uh, but she wrote, she wrote a piece in 2013, which she talked about, look, the, 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 the important thing uh, in a pro-life culture is basically people have to be less risk averse. They have to be like, more willing to take chances. We think about, you know, we think about child rearing as this like, as this like a thing we should only do cautiously. And the reality is it's always an impulsive act. And so I think, I, look, yeah, you kind of got to get people to accept that, like, to, you got to reduce the costs to get people to ship it. But like, also, I don't know, people's like, people's like risk preferences are totally screwy when it comes to this stuff. And the only way that you actually get people to have the marginal kid is by getting interested in like, yeah, screw it, whatever. I'm going to have the marginal kid. So, uh, yeah, I mean, th- yeah, but this this, this is what I was saying about the sort of the, the repression of the 1990s is it, you know, pushed people to be more, more risk averse in good ways and bad. I, I mean, great. Charles, I would just say though, and, re- and then, and then Patrick, you can have the last word. I would only say in response to that, that if you believe that policy is very bad at influencing culture and that, which seems to be kind of what you believe and it's part of the root of your pessimism, well, then one could say, well, those risk preferences are culturally constructed. We're really bad at using policy to, to revise cultural construction. So we maybe just have to accept the risk preferences as given and say, okay, given that people are less risk averse, we just have to lower the risks to family formation. 
I mean, that is a way you could argue it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that ultimately, if we think that the current risk level was set partially by policy, you can set it in the other direction. You have to consider whether or not the trade-offs are worth it. I'll let I'll let I'll let Patrick have the last word, and then we'll reach recommendations. Yeah, no, I think you're both right, at least in part. And and I think there's definitely an element of policy can impact people's risk preferences. Think about you know. There's that classic now paper about car seats as contraception. You used to just toss six kids in the back of your you know, Ford Pinto or whatever it was. And I guess Pinto wouldn't take six kids, but regardless, toss six kids in the back and, and, and call it a day. And now each of them needs a car seat. And that's a shift in, you know, policy driven cultural expectations about how you raise a child. You, you, you know, you, the, whether or not the sort of actual material costs of having a child have, ra- have been you know, raised over the last half decade, certainly the culture ex- expectation on parents has been raised mm-hmm. a lot. You can't just feed your kid peanut butter and jelly seven days a week and, and uh, be considered a good parent anymore. And I think moms feel this more acutely than dads, certainly. But there's, there's definitely an aspect of that. But at the same time, there are still trade-offs involved as well. And so I think you know, that's where I come down a little more on Aaron's side of the argument and says that like I don't know if we can totally change parent risk purposes through through policy. And some of that's just, you know, LOL go to church a little bit. But there is a there's a role for policy in smoothing some of those trade-offs. And so when it comes to, you know, building environments that you can walk your kid to school and, you know, safe sidewalks and, and let them walk home, ride their bike home, that kind of stuff, that can lower people, you know, perceived risk a little bit. That's a policy choice we can make. We can lower the trade-offs around, you know, having a kid in the first place when it comes to pregnancy discrimination laws and pay leave and some of these other things that that sort of make having a kid a more of a financial risk than maybe it needs to be. So, you know, again, as, as we think about parenthood as being something that, that individuals take on the risk and the costs associated with that and the benefits accrue to society and, and helping us avoid a children of men scenario, I think there's a role for the state to play in, in helping try to smooth some of those things. Could I just make a really quick point on something you yeah, said? Yeah, but then we should- I, I did think- yeah, yeah, no, no. Yeah, yeah. But this is interesting. But just so the car seat thing, you know, it's 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 interesting because to me, that that's a case though for where even if you want to make things easier with more state intervention, you also might argue that we need to be a little more libertarian in certain ways, and that the overregulation of life in the name of safety has increased the costs, and kind of through that increase created a, this risk averse culture. Right. So, so, I mean, I, it's interesting because people often oppose libertarianism and this kind of more state focused pro family conservatism. Judged based on your answers, Patrick, it seems to me that there's a way to synthesize them and to say, look, maybe we do need some more state intervention here and there. But there's also probably a whole lot of areas where, you, I mean, I'm not saying we should get rid of child seat laws. I don't have strong opinions, but housing, it was a big one. Yeah, yeah. It wouldn't be crazy to say, look, well, I mean, we did an episode on housing where we talked about how regulations designed to sort of increase the quality of housing end up meaning that it restricts the supply and then there's more homeless. Like there are all these examples where if you were just willing to accept lower quality shit, or perhaps in this case, more risk to your kids in the back seat, you might end up with more kids, right? And that might on a kind of utilitarian grounds actually be better. But anyway, this is the, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm sending Severium a copy of Brian Kaplan's book. I'm sending a selfish reason to have more kids. We'll get him to procreate yet. Let's, on that topic, move on to recommendations. Oh, that's a good recommendation this week. Cool. I'll, I'll let Aaron give his first. Uh, and then we're going to be you know, Pat. I've, I've revised my recommendations for yeah, me too. twice already, but now I'm going to revise because Charles just reminded me of what my ultimate recommendation is. Those who know me will know that I really, really like the philosopher Derek Parfit. And Charles, I can tell, is going to roll his eyes and, and get mad at me. But Derek Parfit has this very interesting thought experiment called the repugnant conclusion. I won't go through it, but basically it's an argument for why having tons and tons of kids and lead it and, and that leading to overpopulation where each life is at a very low level of subsistence welfare is actually a better state of affairs than one in which there's far fewer people at a high level of welfare. He argues that this is actually kind of a logical conclusion of principles that we take for granted and that avoiding this seemingly dystopian, very high population scenario actually requires us to make philosophical moves that entail even more counterintuitive conclusions that we can't possibly accept. And many people don't want to bite the bullet of the repugnant conclusion. I have increasingly come around to the view that it is not a crazy bullet to bite and that perhaps the world really would be better if everyone just 
had tons and tons of sex, had lots and lots of kids. And yes, each kid would have less nice things, but there'd be more worthwhile human life in the world. And ultimately, this kind of overpopulated state of affairs would actually be, you know, optimal and and is in fact the ideal. This is actually the from text. the standpoint of population ethics. So everyone should read Reasons and Persons, the book in which Derek Parfit lays out this brilliant thought experiment. If you have this like is actually the ten text hours of, to read of, of Aaron's Hinge bio. <laughs> you know, it's not. Come but, but a conclusion. It's with not. It. It's, but you know, that's an interest. I, I, you know, that's Back an interesting it, yeah. idea. I have other philosophy in my hinge bio, Charles. It's fun, but perhaps it's, it's time to update it. It's time to update it. Okay. My plug this week, uh, this is the last minute insight that you all heard about 15 seconds ago, is Brian Kaplan's "Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids." Well, being a great parent is less work and more fun than you think. This is like a 2000 something. I don't know when this book came out. 2011. Yeah, really? That early? Sure. 2000, late 2011. It's it's really just Kaplan's review of all the lid on why what you do as a parent just doesn't matter that much and why parenting is actually much easier and safer than you think it is. I found it very helpful from the perspective of allowing myself to relax. I mean, I'm so, you know, like a crazy person as a parent, but I'm less of a crazy person than I would have been if I hadn't read this book. Do you have a recommendation for our listeners for their hinge bios or otherwise? Yeah, no, I I I both go with with Parfit and and Kaplan and saying, yeah, care a little less about quality, or sorry, yeah, quality and, and air a little more on the side of quantity. I, I think that's definitely, you know, everybody should go out and go on a date if you're not married. If you are married, have a date night in and, and see what happens. So that's my sort of tongue-in-cheek recommendation. Uh, my recommendation is get laid. <laughs> <laughs> my more serious recommendation is is a great, I think it's 76, 1976 essay in Harper's of all places by the late Michael Novak. It's called The Family Out of Favor. And it's 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 a wonderful essay just talking about how even in the in the mid-70s, you know, entering into family life was seen as this sort of daring and and countercultural thing in the sort of elite circles and how that's how that narrative has sort of been carried on. Talking about how, you know, the family is this sort of you know, the seedbed of, of a strong society is, uh, and, and and thinking about family policy from a, a you know, neoconservative perspective. But, you know, as in a lot of things, that sort of original gen, gen of, of neoconservatives really got a lot of things right. And so Michael Lombard's a great place to start if you want to think more about these issues. Great. They, they, they all have these right. Well, thank you, Pat, so much for joining us on Institutionalized. Thank you, as always, to our producers at Nebulous. Listeners, if you would like to send us questions, comments, compliments, concerns. I don't know. I'm married. Adopted, okay. adopted children. Adopted children. Okay. Yeah, that'll work. Children. We'll take, I, no, I've got enough children. You can say Aaron children. It's fine. You can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. That's about all the time that we have. So until next time, I'm Charles Van Lehman. I'm Aaron Sibarium. And you've been listening to Institutionalized. I hope you'll join us again soon. 